2: Hi, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. I'm your host for Yoga Birth Babies. And today I have Banu Dekaris. She is a childbirth educator, labor support doula, doula trainer, and breastfeeding counselor. And we are digging in and dissecting and discussing the ARRIVE trial. You may have heard about that. It's talking about induction at 39 weeks and the results they're seeing. So it was a really great conversation Bonnie has so much information. She's just brilliant at at this discussion. So it was a treat for me. I'd been hearing a lot about this. I didn't know quite how to unpack this for the students and my private clients. So I think if this is something you've heard about or you're a childbirth educator and you're wondering, how does this get presented to your group? I think this will help you with that. But I also want to take a quick moment just to give a shout out to Nanette and Maria, who recently made a contribution, a, a donation to Yoga Birth Babies and a big... Thank you for that. Things like that really help keep this thriving. It's such a passion project of mine because I'm what I consider a lifetime learner. I love learning as much as I can and sharing. And each time we get a donation or contribution, it helps keep the podcast running. So a special thank you. And also just a reminder, if you're unable to make a monetary contribution, maybe you can just go on to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a rating and review. Also, I'm really excited to share that my online course, Who's Afraid of the Pregnant Yogi, is wrapping up. It was amazing and such a great experience, so thank you for those who joined me, and I'll be doing it again probably in the spring. Uh, also in the spring, we have our New York City teacher training, which is already full. I can't believe it. It's December, and the spring training's full, so if it's something you're interested in, our 85-hour training, check out the fall dates because they're already up, and that's pretty much it, so enjoy my conversation, Vanu. It's great, and in, and have a great day
0: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DDW, Void work prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
2: Hey, Bonu. how are you? I'm so excited to talk to you. I'm very excited to be here as your guest. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Yes. Yeah, so when I read about the Arrive Study, and then for listeners, so Bonnie and I have a friend in common, Terry Richmond, and when I was talking to Terry about talking about the arrived study. And she said, you know, the person to talk to is Bonu." And I thought, all right, well, that's what we'll do. Because I think this is a really big deal. And a lot of childbirth educators are talking about the findings and then how we even incorporate it. So thanks for time. Ta- thanks for giving me your time. My pleasure. All right. So let's jump into, can you just, just first tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got into this line of business?
1: Okay. Um, and so by this line of business, I think you're, you're talking about, the um, the doula world and pregnancy and, and, <laughs> and, and yes, all of those things. So yes. I, I actually attended my first birth when I was four years old. Oh. Um, and I was at, um, my mother, the birth of my mother's third child. Um, I don't really remember a whole lot about the labor, just that we got a whole new set of toys to kind of keep us (laughs) occupied through the whole thing, meaning me and my sister. Um, and I, I do, however, um, remember, uh, the moments right after birth and seeing the baby and just being mesmerized by how my mom had become two people. Um, Mm. and there's a really telling picture of my mom holding, her her newborn, who really looks like a two month old, because my brother was over ten pounds. Wow! Um, and she has her eyes kind of rolled up in her head and is looking totally exhausted. Um, and my sister is staring into my brother's eyes, and there I am at the foot of the bed, staring right between my mother's eyes, like mesmerized. Like how did that come out of there? Um, and that fascination and curiosity about birth um started at a pretty young age and you know, my mom always shared her birth stories with us, and she had her first baby um in a hospital actually in in Guyana, South America and it was a surprise breach and um, because the baby was breech, even though she had a normal vaginal birth, they said that the baby had to be separated from her and she didn't get to see my sister for over 24 hours. Wow. Um, and this really deeply affected her. And so this idea of um, of a woman, a, pa- a a patient feeling like they had no autonomy and that things were Done to them without their permission and feeling disempowered. Like that was a lesson I learned at a really young age. Um, And my mom went on to have her second two babies um, at home. Um, And so the seeds were planted um, that the autonomy of a birthing person was extremely important. And that medical care sometimes was cultural and institutional and not necessarily based on the best science. Um, and I also learned from a young age that midwives were who you go to if you want care that is really respectful of, you know, your your autonomy of the physiological process. Um, so jumping forward, I, I went to college um, for biology and I did pre-medical studies and, you know, was always very fascinated with how the human body works. Um, and I worked in some doctor's office, actually, a pediatrician and an OBGYN to kind of get a, a feel for that. Um, and at the same time, I was reaching out to midwives for advice on, you know, if midwifery school would would be the right path for me. And they they all told me the same thing, which was that this is not a job. This is a calling and Mm -hmm. that it's a lifestyle and it takes a huge amount of commitment um, and that you should start by attending births and see if this is something that would be for you. Um, And so after college, I actually went to Belize for a few months and I stayed with a traditional uh, Mayan midwife there and was able to attend a couple births and was completely mesmerized by the process. Um, And so I felt like this this really is where I want to be. And so I did all the prerequisites for midwifery school. Interestingly enough, it included a lot more than the pre-medical studies. Um, I had to take courses in psychology, um, an additional year of anatomy and physiology, nutritional science. Um, And I I got so fascinated with nutrition that I kind of sidetracked and and earned my master's degree in that. Um, Just a little (laughs) sidetracked. Just a little (laughs) master's on the side. And at the same time, (laughs) um, I got certified as a childbirth educator and was able to attend a whole set of births as a volunteer doula at Long Island College Hospital, which has, you know, in Brooklyn, which has since closed. Um, And it was really quite intuitive to me how I could support people through birth. Um, And at the same time, sometimes I would go home crying because I would witness you know, maltreatment um, and disrespect of patients. And being a volunteer there, I was able to be privy to conversations um, behind the nurse's station that kind of clearly showed me that decision making was not always something that was about, you know, the best interests of that patient and that baby that sometimes it was about clearing rooms and sometimes it was about residents needing to do another procedure and finding someone who would be the most appropriate person for that procedure. Um, And I definitely saw that women of color or women that didn't speak English well were maltreated on a level that white women were not. Um, And there was one provider there that I immediately kind of saw was really different and she was much more soft-spoken and she was really kind and took her time. And when I was asking the nurses about it, you know, they said, oh, she's a midwife. (laughs) Um, So it was just so clearly noticeable. Um, And I don't want to, you know, say that, you know, all obstetricians operate in this way. No, absolutely not. I mean, there are many, many wonderful OBs that I, I find are also as kind and patient Um, as any midwife. Um, It's just that as a system, we have to remember that the, you know, in hospital settings, that there's a lot more operating there than just medical care. There's decisions made along legal lines, along, you know, cost savings, along um, respecting, you know, the parameters for, uh, the nurses union. I mean, there's so many ways that decisions are making that are made that are not always simply in the best interest of that, um, you know, that patient, um, in the moment. Um, yeah. So flash forward to, graduating from my master's, um, and then I just needed to kind of earn, start earning a little bit of money before going back to school. So I ended up teaching um, childbirth classes, um, and my students would want to hire me to go to their births with them as their doula. Um, and at that point, I had attended a doula training just for my own interest, even though I hadn't pursued certification. Um, I did feel pretty qualified to offer support as I had attended births in many different settings. I trained with the most rigorous childbirth education certification, which is um, in New York, which is CEA. And uh, after teaching, you know, and attending the births of my students for a few years, I realized like, here I am in a full career. Um, And I, I didn't quite feel that need to, you know, end up um, in midwifery school, even though that might eventually be my path. Um, and so now I've been working full time in the field for 15 years. Um, I also now train new doulas and I mentor aspiring childbirth educators. And I think my background in science, um, you know, has, has really enabled me to, um, read research. Well, um, I've taken, you know, several courses in reading scientific, um, literature and biostatistics. Um, and so I can, you know, I can help, help to translate things like the ARRIVE trial, um, kind of pick it apart, um, to people that may not have that, that background. So Um, that is what
2: I'm super excited about because mm -hmm. when I heard about this and I was digesting it, and I read it, and read it, and read, it and I read as many things I could about commenting on it. And um, I found Rebecca Decker from Evidence Based Birth. Her comment about it. Hensie Goer, who I did speak with one time on the podcast. She really dives into stuff. Um, so, you know, I, I did as much as I could. But I thought yeah. if I, if it's kind of if it's a lot of information to take in, and it's going to impact how. The students at PYC and just the pregnant persons dealing with interaction with their care provider, we need to really unpack this and look at it. So I'm thrilled. So let's just jump in for those that are still here. You know, it's maybe they're hearing about it and they're like, what is this? Can you describe the ARRIVE study and the findings from the study?
1: Yeah. So the ARRIVE, I mean, it's a clever little acronym. <laughs> what ARRIVE, you know, kind of means is the baby arriving. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's an acronym that's derived from um, a randomized trial of labor induction versus expectant management. So I'll just kind of describe what those two term me- terms mean. Um, labor induction is a process of starting um, someone's labor, either with me- medications or procedures. So generally, you're going to the hospital, you're not in labor, and then labor is initiated. Um, Expectant management means um, we're not initiating labor in the moment. We're going to wait and see if labor starts on its own. Now, that being said, what expectant management can mean depends on the particular study. So the most famous study on induction, the HANA trial um, from 1992, um, they induced labor around 41 weeks in their induction group. And then their expectant management group were allowed to go all the way until 44 weeks wow. um, before possible induction. Um, whereas this trial is quite different. Um, and what's what's different about it is that the induction date is kind of set a bit earlier. Um, so they were looking at inducing women around 39 weeks um, and... Uh, comparing that with expectant management to 40 weeks plus five days, all the way to 42 weeks plus two days. Um, And so that was kind of expectant management. So it's important to realize that in the expectant management group, you're also going to have women that are induced. Mm -hmm. Um, So the researchers were trying to see if induction at 39 weeks would result in a lower rate of serious complications um, for the babies, even including mortality, compared to waiting um, until at least 40 weeks and five days for induction. Um, they were also looking at the rates of cesarean in the two groups. Um, and the study included about 6,000 women, took place at 41 hospitals. Um, And again, it's quite similar to a lot of other studies on labor induction, the big difference being that the time of induction was earlier. Um, So getting into the details a little bit more, um, the study was only including first-time mothers that were determined to be low risk and had no increased risk for any condition requiring a cesarean birth. So they wanted to make sure that um, that, the The kind of medical need for a cesarean wouldn't skew the results
2: mm-hmm.
1: um and those those uh participants, about six thousand um people participated, were placed in one of two groups: the first group was in induction of labor close to thirty nine weeks um and the second group the expectant management um and again, some of those would have spontaneous labor, and some of them would end up being induced um so The researchers looked at a whole set of different outcomes for the baby's health, including things like the need for respiratory support, APGAR scores, infection, um, even death. And then they combined all those outcomes into like an overall score of perinatal morbidity. Um, the expectant management group did end up with a, a higher rate of perinatal morbidity, but it wasn't high enough to determine that it didn't happen by chance, meaning it didn't reach statistical significance when analyzed. Um, the rates of mortality for babies were so low in both of the groups that we couldn't really even look at that. You would have needed a much bigger study to kind of examine that, um, So the bottom line in terms of the benefits to the baby is that we didn't really see um, a benefit to the babies for early induction at 39 weeks. Um, However, and this is what is kind of the surprising um, and very interesting outcome, is when we look at the outcomes measured for the mothers, um, we do see a significant difference in two of them. One is that the cesarean rate in the earlier induction group um, was significantly lower. It was 18.6 percent compared to 22.2 in the in the um, expectant management group. In addition, we also see greater um, numbers of hypertensive disorders, things like high blood pressure, preeclampsia, eclampsia um, in the expectant management group, and that that's kind of expected because we do know that hypertensive disorders. Um, rates do get higher the later in pregnancy you are. So someone who may have a blood pressure that's kind of creeping up at 39 or 40 weeks, it might kind of cross over into pathology at 41 or 42 weeks. Um, uh, So those were the two kind of results that stood out and reached um, statistical significance
0: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW, void, prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.
2: Yeah, they've really, the whole um, induction at 39 leading to lower cesarean. That was interesting. I find, you know, I was actually just doing some research on that on my own. I was listening to another podcast about induction and this one was talking about you know, there a lot of times childbirth educators, we keep saying, like, try to avoid induction and avoid induction because it's higher rate of cesarean. However, the study is saying at 39 weeks. So can you talk about how this study really differs from current practices and of waiting for labor to start on its own?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's really important to kind of frame what the study is looking at mm-hmm. versus, you know, if we're actually comparing spontaneous labor. Meaning labor that starts on its own compared to induced labor. Mm -hmm. If you're actually looking at what happens in first time mothers, we do know that the rate of cesarean in an induced labor is about double Mm -hmm. the rate of cesarean in a spontaneous labor. So that may in part be why, as childbirth educators, we're saying, you know, it's great to avoid induction because spontaneous labor has, you know, about half the rate of cesarean section. But what we have to keep in mind is that if you're not induced, let's say at 41 weeks, um, you're not guaranteed a spontaneous labor Mm -hmm. before perhaps 42 weeks. So usually in real life, we're not choosing between an induction and kind of allowing the pregnancy to go on indefinitely and never inducing. We're kind of choosing between induction and Hoping the labor happens spontaneously until a later date, at which point an induction will be done. Mm-hmm. And so, when you're comparing induction at a certain time frame to expectant management, you know, you if you if you go into spontaneous labor, you win. You know, you have a lower rate of cesarean. But if you don't, and you're induced either because something medical shows up or because you hit that that later date. Now your rate is even higher than if you had had that earlier induction. And I think I really want to highlight what you just said
2: about if you go into spontaneous labor, you win. Like that's really ultimately great because I'm nervous that people are going to read this and be like, oh, I had better just at 39 weeks, I better do this. So I think there might be um,
1: fear and apprehension and just confusion. Yeah. Absolutely, And it's, you know, it's confusion because you're, you're hearing two different things. You might be hearing, you know, oh, spontaneous you know, inductions increase cesarean rates. And at the same time you're hearing, oh, have an induction because that'll decrease your chance of cesarean. And that's so confusing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we have to understand what, what those comparisons are. That early induction has a lower cesarean rate perhaps than a later induction um but that spontaneous labor has the lowest cesarean rate.
2: So do you think these results are going to cause doctors to recommend routine induction for healthy people at 39 weeks? Yes.
1: Yes. I do. <laughs> okay, let's talk a little <laughs> bit about that. Um I I think that um you know there is a real kind of wonderful thing about being able to schedule birth. Um, You know, if we if we think about ourselves as human beings, like even someone who perhaps wants to have a totally natural labor, um, a a totally spontaneous labor, if they could kind of decide which day it would happen um, without any induction or medical magic wand, like (laughs) magic wand, like that would be a wonderful thing, you know. Um, so it's very, very enticing. And especially for hospital systems, it can be very enticing to have more births scheduled. You will you will know perhaps when you need a greater number of nurses. You will know um, you won't schedule inductions on the weekend. You won't schedule them on the holidays. So You know, it it can be enticing for doctors as well. They are human beings and for midwives, you know, we're all human. We all, you know, will rationalize things that perhaps we already want to do or would like to do. Um, and so it can be enticing to recommend routine induction. And unfortunately, I, I think that the nuances of of this new data is not gonna be presented. I think it's gonna be presented as the title. Um, you know induction at 39 weeks will decrease your chance of cesarean. But there is a whole lot in this study that isn't, you know, isn't necessarily going to be replicated, um, in real life. Well, Um, I think
2: the situation as I'm listening to this is, so the data shown healthy people at 39 weeks, you know, and we're going to talk about the parameters in which that would happen. But then we also know the data shows that for first-time parents, it's usually
1: post 40 weeks. So there's like, do we... It it will result in about, you know, if all first-time labors were induced at 39 weeks, we do know that about 90% of first-time birthers are going to go beyond... 39 weeks. Um yeah. the average gestational length of a first um first pregnancy is 40 weeks plus 5 days.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um and so if we're talking about um 39 uh you know 39 week inductions we're talking about we're not even in the sweet spot yet <laughs> in hospital settings that are going to be you know, probably 80 to 90%, you know, and when we think about the fact that induced labor takes longer, you know, the average first labor is going to take about 24 hours when it's a spontaneous labor. Mm-hmm. If you now add to that, um, you know, being admitted to the hospital and having a period of cervical cervical ripening, that can be 12 hours of, or more before even real contractions are starting in labor, where then it can be 24 hours. I mean, I, I remember reading a little bit about your own birth story. You might have experienced some of these, <laughs> you <laughs> yeah, know, links of what a first labor can entail. Yeah, it's funny. Those that have been
2: listening to the podcast are like, oh, yes, Deb and her epic labor.
1: <laughs> so we we know first first babies can take their time. And so if if you're now looking at like 80 to 90% of patients being induced for labor which i think 39 week induction as a routine is going to create those kind of numbers um, I don't know if our hospitals have the capacity to handle those kind of links of labors for 80 to 90 percent of people. I think, you know, you're going to have massive overcrowding. I don't know if on Sunday you saw the article um, in The New York Times yeah. written by Julie um, Satow, but she wrote an excellent article um, about the lack of natural birth options mm-hmm. in New York city. And, you know, she interviewed me for a couple hours, um, for the article and in it, she describes some of the terrible overcrowding conditions at these city hospitals. I mean, you and I have both um, seen she them includes as a- it's... Well, Yes, Yeah. <laughs> she included an example of a woman giving birth in a supply closet. Yeah. Um, you know, you and I I'm sure you've had a, a client birth in triage or or you know or because they don't have another or room. the operating room because they, you know, for a vaginal birth because they don't have, you know, a regular room. And so it's this really sterile environment. And, you know, or or women that are starting to push and they're still in the waiting room or the hallway and there's births in the hallways sometimes. I think, you know, there was a story of a birth um of twins in triage even recently. Um and so, what's going to happen in real life um, if everyone is is being induced around 39 weeks? I don't think that we're going to have the same parameters as you're seeing in the in the study. Keep in mind that in the in the induction group and in the expectant management group, you're seeing cesarean rates. You know that you know whether it's 19% or 22%. You're seeing rates that are a lot lower. Than inductions in general in hospital settings, which are probably closer to thirty percent.
2: So let's you. I love so many things you said. I want I want to unpack a few of those. So sure. let's talk about, and I'm I'm deviating a little bit from what I'd intended, but let's talk about the parameters of the ARRIVE study compared to the typical i mean these to use the word schedule or parameters that are often seen in hospitals. Now, I'll also say, you know, this is a podcast that's going to be heard everywhere. So where you and I have the most experience... New York City hospitals. Some other hospitals might have um, more flexibility and not as crowded. Uh, where right. they might, some people might be listening to this and place to be like, "What do you mean? There's a timetable?" So for listeners, yeah. just keep in mind, um, Bonnie and I are comparing this to the New York hospitals, which tend to be, as we already expressed, crowded um, and not really opening for days and days of labor. So let's talk about what that looked like. So the parameters set up for their study to give these figures compared to what the reality of birth might yes, look like.
1: they definitely had stricter kind of um, ACOG and Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine. Um, ACOG is the American Congress of OBGYN, which recently kind of set guidelines for um, failure to progress in labor. And failure to progress is the most common reason for cesarean um, both with inductions and um, with spontaneous labors around the country. Um, and so in in the trial, there were stricter policies than are typical for deeming an induction um, has failed. Um, you know, early labor had to be given a good amount of time even after cervical ripening. Um, they used the guidelines for um, failure of progress in labor um once labor was active or past six centimeters, so they definitely you know were were following a specific um protocol that that in all likelihood helped the rate be lower now, keep in mind, it would have helped the late the rate be lower both in the induction group and in the expectant management group. Um, And that's important to remember because that wouldn't necessarily skew the results of this study because those protocols were used in both of those groups. Mm -hmm. However, it would skew the applicability of this study to the general population or to a hospital where those guidelines aren't strictly adhered to. Um, we also have to keep in mind there's there's got to be some amount of what's called the Hawthorne effect or just the fact that the study was it wasn't possible to um, make this a blinded study, meaning that the the um, participants of the study, whether they were the patients or they were the doctors or the midwives or the nurses, everyone knew that they were participating in this study. And we do know that when individuals are observed um that they often change their behavior, you know, for Mm -hmm. there's a saying that, you know, you know, the true character of a person um, by what they do when nobody is watching, (laughs) you know, because we know that we may be a more ideal vision of ourselves when we are observed. um, And we know that medical care providers may practice in a way that's more evidence-based and more careful when they are being observed. Um, there have been several programs instituted at hospitals around the country that that kind of show that observation results in lower cesarean rates. Um, that can be anything from publishing individual cesarean rates of providers um, so that all the other providers can see that, mm-hmm. um, to requiring a case review and second opinion for any cesarean performed um and so again that may mean this isn't as applicable to situations in which providers are not being carefully observed um and they you know i think sometimes there's an expectation that you you go in in the evening and have cervical ripening overnight and then in the morning um pitocin a medication to give you contractions is started And I've been at many, many inductions where doctors might say, okay, we should expect to see a baby by this evening. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's wonderful. Everyone wants the baby to arrive by the evening, but the expectation of that um, can now make it seem like when midnight rolls around that there's a problem when it's actually quite typical for a first labor to Slow take that up. Absolutely. And if that provider is not in a study and being watched, um, their integrity may not be as great to say, you know, if I need to stay here till twelve o'clock noon tomorrow, we're, you know, we're gonna give it the time it needs for a vaginal birth.
2: Well, yeah, I can relate to that on a personal level and as a doula, having watched that and seen, you know, a little bit of hurrying, like, oh, you know, we thought, or let's start to engage Increase the pit or, you know, just keep a little bit of pressure and anxiety about it. How yeah. are professional groups like ACOG and ACNM um, responding to the study?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, the first thing I, I would say is, do you, have you heard of the California Maternity um, Maternal Quality Care Collaborative? I feel like I've read about it, but can you
2: talk a little bit more about it?
1: Yeah, this is. It's kind of a data based agency that's funded by Stanford University oh, yes. um, okay. in California, and they're, you know, they're looking kind of at the California system. I think there's like, you know, 240 California hospitals, mm-hmm. um, and you know what what they're what they're looking at. Um, you know, they've ex- issued kind of extensive recommendations for hospitals on reduction of primary cesarean, and have kind of helped them um and what they find what they said is that the cesarean rate of 22.2% even in the expectant management group is just surprisingly low and that you're seeing rates closer to maybe 32% and some as high as 60% so the study is again not really representing real circumstances. Um, ACOG and and the American um, College of, of Nurse, uh, Congress of Nurse Midwifery also responded. Um, ACOG did release new pri- practice guidelines, um, and they've kind of concluded that it would be reasonable to offer elective induction to low-risk first-time mothers at 39 weeks. Um, they do, however, urge care providers to consider um, some important factors first, um, that while, while you can offer elective induction at 39 weeks, it's not something that should be coerced. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not something that, you know, you could present it as well. I don't let my patients go past 39 weeks that it shouldn't be presented in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, it should be presented as a choice that may, you know, decrease your cesarean chances by 15% if, you know, if you, um, don't go into spontaneous labor after that fact. So, you know, the values and the preferences of the, of the pregnant, um, person, the staffing and facility resources should be considered, um, the ability of that facility to assist longer labors and a very strict protocol for failed induction, would need to be implemented. So they're saying if you if you want to offer that you have to be able to kind of create the environment for the induction that's similar to what was done in the study.
2: So that's huge. So let's just take a pause there and understand. So especially those that are in a more crowded metropolitan area where the hospital, and this is something I think people should talk to their care providers before even considering this, talk and be like, okay, so typically hospitals have an idea of trying to move things along. Pushing stage might only be limited to three hours. So like when we're talking about, this using these findings will they be respected in the same way so i think that's a right. conversation to have not just oh you know there's a study and it shows this these findings for the pregnant person to ask if they will have those parameters i think that's really important cuz i think it can happen and-
1: halfway <laughs> You know and I mean? that's Exactly. And that's something that I talk about a lot in my classes is that, you know, the first decision with induction is whether or not, you know, the induction is going to happen. But if it's decided on that the induction is going to happen, the next conversation is how, you know, can I have up to 24 hours for cervical ripening instead of 12, of, which it often is instead of just 12. Sometimes 12 is all you need. Right. Sometimes if it hasn't been you know, especially as a first, a first timer, like, can, can we extend that, you know, what are the parameters for failure to progress once we're kind of starting the contraction part of labor? Like all of this needs to be discussed, I think in a, you know, and, and with an induction, you kind of know when it's going to happen. And so that can be planned, um, a little bit more, Um, The American College of Nurse Midwives, um, they have also released a press statement um, that was a little bit different. Um, They said that they continue to promote normal, healthy physiological birth um, and a woman's right to make decisions during her pregnancy. Um, And so I think that's, you know, kind of addressing that they, they may, you know, they may say, hey, elective induction is an option. Um, but they're not going to present that as this is what you should do. Um, They did express concern that many women may not desire elective induction and propose that the costs of um, electively inducing low-risk women at 39 weeks might be better spent on less invasive approaches um, to reduce cesareans, such as continuous labor support from a doula. And I think that You know, that really brings up a huge point here is that when we're considering what things can reduce your cesarean rate, um, there are many things that are, you know, far more um, cohesive with physiological, normal, natural birth um, and, you know, far cheaper. And, you know, far less stressful than a long, you know, hypermedicalized birth experience. So if you're admitted to the hospital in active labor, um, if you hire a labor support doula, um, in hospitals where greater than 40% of labors are managed by midwives, we see overall cesarean rates around 15%, which are even lower Mm -hmm. than the group that had the lower rate in this study. So then putting
2: aside um, and, the study, looking at a midwife and a doula as your right. birthing posse.
1: Yeah. And even planning, not even if you end up with a water birth, but planning to have a water birth um, decreases your cesarean rate far more significantly than the, the treatment group in this study. Um, so they're, you know, being walking in early labor. And some of those things are are not able um, to happen with an induction. So then, you, know? you know, looking at why is someone asking
2: to be induced? Are they asking to be induced because they're hoping for a decreased cesarean? And then looking, there are many other options besides exactly. induction. Exactly.
1: And Here are not- all the other things that you can do. Um, and you know, perhaps there are other things you can do to also encourage labor before a later induction date.
2: As a birth worker, how are you seeing this implemented into practice? Are you kind of, are you budding against this? So with, I'm not, yeah.
1: I'm not kind of coming up against it quite yet. yet. <laughs> um, it's yes, still pretty but new. I, I know it's coming, um, you know, in, in my own practice, um, You know, I I haven't seen many um, providers saying, you know, really encouraging 39-week inductions. Um, I have heard stories already of this happening here in New York City. Um, I have a feeling that the first step in this is that induction at 41 weeks is going to become more of a kind of a hard ending, Mm -hmm. Um, whereas now I see a lot of providers still feel comfortable with inducing at 41 plus three days or even at 42 weeks. Um, And that those providers who kind of are willing to um, support people in going far later may start pushing that back to 41 weeks. And perhaps those providers who, you know, 41 weeks feels like a really hard ending to them. um, Even though the study that it was based on, the HANA study, um, the average, you know, time of induction in the treatment group was 41 plus four. Mm -hmm. But it was planned for 41. Um, You know, we may see those providers start, start encouraging it at 39 or 40 weeks. Um, Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered com. It's my little escape. Now
0: Judy's the life of the party.
1: Oh baby, mama's bringing home the bacon.
0: Whoa, take it easy, Judy. (laughs) The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Ch-ch-chumba. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. We're prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But then know, don't you think on. we
2: might start to see a higher cesarean? So say someone, you know, I know a fair amount of, not a fair, some. Care provider will say, "All right, forty, you know, forty-one and six, and that is it." And then we're starting induction. Right? If they're starting to pull it back to forty-one and be like, "That's it," and then they're inducing without giving those extra few days where the body might really need it and the baby might need it, right. don't you think
1: right. we might then see actually an increase in cesarean? I I do. Again, I think I think the you know the real world applicability of this, we're we're going to see the opposite effect of what you know what this study um, is showing, you know, I, I actually had, um, a chance, um, to speak with, um, Neil Shaw. um, Isn't he great? I had him on the podcast. Oh oh, yeah. He's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, this was at the New Jersey symposium for physiological birth. Um, he he's for those of you who might not have heard that podcast he's in, um, you should listen to it, but (laughs) Um, I'm going to go listen to it, but he's an obstetrician that teaches um, at Harvard Medical School, and he works around the country with hospitals to establish systems to try to reduce avoidable cesareans. Um, and and I had a little chance to speak with him privately, and and you know he later kind of brought up those points to the group, but he agreed, saying that implementing you know a, a policy of routine 39 week inductions for low risk first timers. Um, was very likely to increase the cesarean rate in the real world, that the results of this study are not, are not really applicable. I mean, I could see the positive results of this study might be that, you know, if for some reason a 39-week induction um, makes the most sense for, you know, whatever reason, um, perhaps what we can take from it is that this should not um, like a, a a cesarean rate of eighteen percent or or nineteen percent is possible, even with thirty nine week inductions. Um, when when they become necessary. So
2: let's talk about how this is going to be harmful to a physiological birth. Do we think then
1: we're losing that possibility? <laughs> well, I mean, it if you know if this starts becoming policy, it's going to mean that spontaneous labors are going to be really rare. They're going to be the anomaly. Um, and it's, it's going to mean that, you know, the new generation of medical students and residents are, are rarely going to see what a spontaneous labor looks like. Um, just the same way that, you know just a, a natural birth or an unmedicated birth is is currently kind of becoming an anom- anom- anomaly in medical settings in hospital settings um the vast majority of spontaneous labors happen after 39 weeks yeah. um and you know the hormonal mix of a spontaneous labor and a physiological birth um likely has health benefits that we're not measuring I mean, even some very basic things like the ARRIVE trial did not include um, outcomes on breastfeeding as Mm. one of their, you know, neonatal outcomes. They were just looking at, you know, much more severe and immediate um, outcomes. So what, you know, what did inducing at 39 weeks do in terms of rates of breastfeeding? It's quite possible that rates of breastfeeding might have been decreased, you know, exclusive breastfeeding at, at two weeks postpartum could have been decreased by 20%. We don't know. It wasn't looked at. Oh,
2: that would be um, really interesting because we know that, you know, when someone has an induction, they are likely having um, epidural pain medication. And then that we have that constant fluid in the body and what that can yes. do for yes. latch and breath. Oh, I didn't
1: realize that. Right. So that, I mean, that could be a possibility or just the fact that the baby's born at 39 weeks, right? We know that babies that are, as a general rule, we know that longer gestation tends to improve rates of breastfeeding. Um, we know that higher birth weight improves IQ scores and health over the first year of life. These aren't outcomes that are measured here. We're, we're just looking at very immediate things, not the overall, you know, health of, of that baby, um, over the first year of life. And so, you know, if we're, if we're, taking this as kind of a preliminary study and then saying let's let's look let's dig longer. deeper. Yeah, let's dig deeper. Let's look at more outcomes. Let's you know, um we we may see different things and physiological birth may you know, there may be things going on in there that we haven't even um begun to study. And when we think about the fact that there are many ways that are very supportive of physiological um, birth that have a more dramatic effect on the decrease in cesarean rate, like perhaps we save the 39-week induction until after we have instituted all those. Like let's let's get the doula programs going, the water birth option, the mobility and early labor. Get the, rid of the schedule. You know, the midwives for everyone, you know, the, uh, midwives as the default care providers for low-risk women and obstetricians as consultants, um, you know, let, let's bring that philosophy in and then we can support physiological care with likely many, many, many still unknown benefits. Um, and kind of, you know, this would be the most costly and the most interventionist way to try to bring a cesarean rate down.
2: Mm -hmm. And again, I want to point out not getting drawn in just to the headline. So for those that are listening and are pregnant and thinking, you know, getting overwhelmed, I think you brought up a great point that yes, the big headline, you know, decreases cesarean, but we don't know the bigger picture, breastfeeding, health of newborn. Those are really big things that, as you said, they weren't talked about. So it's really easy to get swayed. You know, right. just from the big topic. So right. who might benefit from using the parameters of the ARRIVE study, not the parameters of some certain hospitals, um, and opting into induction at 39 weeks?
1: So one of the things we saw in the ARRIVE study is that, you know, two things were shown um, in, in the patients. One is that the cesarean rate, you know, went from about 22% to 19%. So there was a little decrease there. The other thing excuse me, is that you had um, uh, a higher risk of developing hypertensive disorders um, if you were in the expectant management group. So perhaps, you know, perhaps people who are, you know, already feeling like they might um, have a higher risk of hypertensive disorders, um, you know, might feel more confident being induced earlier. Even if those aren't showing up yet, even if they are still considered low risk. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, perhaps um, people who are really comfortable with the idea of a highly medicalized birth and they, actually feel more in control and, and more comforted by con- things like continuous monitoring or having their entire labor in a hospital setting. Like this may, may feel like this is, a, a, a feels like a safer experience to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will, you know, I would like to point out that that would be ev- almost everyone in the study because they, they started out with about 50,000 Possible participants. And then they cut that down to 22,000 because they didn't want anyone who might have had a a higher chance of needing a cesarean for other reasons. And out of those 22,000 low risk women, um, only about 25% of them agreed to be participants in this study. And some of them were already 38 weeks and six days. So they would (laughs) have been induced like, you know, pretty soon after. So this is a population of of people who were were quite comfortable with being randomized into a 39 week induction. Um and so their their philosophy about birth, their views on induction might be very different. And so perhaps people with that, you know, that kind of view on induction that they're quite comfortable with with the induction possibility, um this could be a reasonable option. Mm -hmm. Um, perhaps, you know, someone who has family members that had a bad outcome at 40 weeks or 41 weeks. Um, I remember years ago, I had a a first time mom who, um, wanted to be induced at 39 weeks and we had a long discussion about it. And I think she fully understood what it entailed and, you know, what, what the benefits might have been, what the risks were. Um, you know, she had had a family member that lost a baby, um, late in gestation and, you know, she had a great experience with her induction and I fully supported her choice to do that. Um, so there, you know, for some people this might might make sense, um, Maybe, you know, maybe someone has a complicated life situation in which choosing the day of the birth and when they're going to be in the hospital may have a big advantage to the rest of their life. Um, And, you know, that makes sense. Maybe Mm -hmm. they live far from the hospital, maybe um, they are a caregiver for someone, um, they can't be away f- from for very long, um, and they need to plan it out. Maybe they have five dogs, <laughs> um, <laughs> and for them, this feels, you know, right to know when they're going to be induced and, you know, they have a 90% chance of, you know, making it to that induction date and having, you know, their birth scheduled. So I think it comes
2: down to really understanding, I I think in anything, you know, if you're agreeing to any sort of intervention or desiring any sort of intervention, really understand the whole picture, not just, you know, a tiny bit that you want to hear, hear the pros, hear the cons, the risks versus benefits and see how it applies to you personally and your family and your situation, which I think should be the same thing for not just this study, but anything that's presented, hearing the whole picture.
1: Right. Right. And I do think it's a little bit of a responsibility of the care providers if they're if they're really gonna push the thirty nine week induction as a way to decrease your caesarean rate. Um, I think it's their responsibility to also inform their patients about the other ways you can decrease your chance of a cesarean. Yes. Um, that might be, you know, even more dramatic and less, you know, less interventionist. Um you know, I agree. some people may you know many women may choose that they they don't want an induction because they they are kind of comfortable with having you know a a a little bit higher chance of cesarean if they get you know to 42 weeks but are are kind of willing willing to do that because their chances if they go into spontaneous labor are so much lower and that they want to labor at home they want you know, to have a lot of freedom of movement. Um, They want to have intermittent oscillation, um, which, by the way, has a much greater reduction in cesarean rates than 39-week induction. Um, But they, you know, they want to have access to some of this. Maybe it's someone who's planning a water birth or a home birth or a birth center birth. And all of those lower cesarean rates, much more than a 39-week induction might. Yeah, and um, it's
2: important to note again that induction use of pitocin, or maybe they, you know, maybe it's just enough uh, softening of the cervix might pop some into labor. But if someone's hoping to have a physiological birth without pain medication, opting in for an induction at thirty nine weeks is likely not going to provide that.
1: Right. Again, it's you know if you're if you're having and and sometimes sometimes the. The wording gets confused. I think we've kind of started seeing unmedicated birth, meaning a birth without an epidural, mm-hmm. but an unmedicated birth means a birth without medication. medication. Yeah. And so if you're having an induction, you know, unless it's starting with just breaking your water or just the Foley balloon, like, it, you know, I would say probably 99% of inductions, and I'm kind of making up that number from my experience. Um, but I would say the vast majority of inductions would involve medications. Yeah. So, so if someone if, if really you, wants
2: to see. If stay. you want an
1: unmedicated or physiological birth, like that's almost by definition, that's not an induction. Correct. And additionally, if you would prefer to kind of, you know, feel the sensations of labor and go through it and have that experience and not have an epidural, um, that's that will be much more challenging um with, with an induction. Yeah. And if
2: you want to stay home longer, exactly, right. freedom movement. So these are right. all really good things. So I want to also ask you, as a childbirth educator,
1: how are you working this into your class? Yeah, a lot of this is not that different, I think, than how I've been teaching so far because the Hannah study, um, you know, also kind of showed that that induction at 41 weeks did not increase your cesarean rate. In fact, it was a little bit lower. Um, Keeping in mind, you know, they didn't use cervical ripening in the expectant management group if that group had to be induced and people could go up to 44 weeks. So the, you know, it wasn't quite a fair comparison there, but this same idea that induction, you know, past 41 weeks, um, you know, there we might see some increased um, risk of stillbirth as well but this idea that, you know, an earlier induction, um, has, you know, may have some potential benefits, but also, um, may have some potential risks and does mean a highly medicalized birth where a lot of your, your other desires for your labor and birth may not be possible. And so that you're kind of always balancing that for yourself as an individual. Um, I've always taught that, you know, in, in terms of an induction, the, the greatest influence, if you decide on an induction on whether or not it, it ends in a cesarean is how it's done. Mm -hmm. Um, and that it's really important to talk to your care providers, not just about the decision to induce or not, but, but what, how it's, how it's going to, um, be done. What are the parameters for failure to progress? Mm -hmm. How much time, you know, can I have, how can I be, you know, given more support to cope and manage, um, with an induction. Sometimes with continuous monitoring, um, people are told they have to stay in bed. And that's just not true. And, you know, being able to stand and sit on the ball and kind of move within the radius of the monitor can make a big difference in in what that person's experience is.
2: Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So is there anything that I haven't asked that you want to mention? I feel like we really dissected this, but I just want to throw out in case there's something I missed.
1: I mean, the, the, you know, the other thing I'm always, I always have in the back of my mind is that, you know, what, how might the consequences of this study be different for black women? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we, there were about 23% of the participants in the study were black. Um, We do know that here in New York city, racial health disparities, you know, are vast. Um, and we really see this, um, show up like even more, um, potently in, in maternal mortality rates for black women, which are 12 times greater than they are for white women here in New York city, despite being such a hyper diverse, um, environment. It's about double, double, um, the disparity we see on the national level. So how might this, you know, kind of play into this study here? Um, induction of labor does require, uh, more care and attention, Um, From staff, the entire labor takes place in the hospital setting. It makes use of medications that have risks of fetal distress, risks of increasing or decreasing blood pressure, bleeding, inductions, you know, generally require more nursing staff, greater monitoring for the mother and the baby. Um, And I think much of the reason we're seeing for these racial health disparities are due to Black women being ignored, not listened to, not cared for as well. And so in this study, of course, um, you know, everyone knew they were in the study. Perhaps they were providing, you know, more attentive care um, with stricter guidelines for failed induction. But that same effect that we might see with that not being the case in real life, um, I wonder if the consequences when we're dealing with Black women or women that don't speak English or... um, you know, we might see, um, an and even, you know, greater, um, real life difference, um, in mm-hmm. terms of, of the op- opposing effect on cesarean rates.
2: That's a great point. Um, yeah. And when I hadn't considered, thank you for sharing that. Sure. So where can people find you and your work?
1: Um, so I, I, teach, um, childbirth classes here in New York city. Um, I teach for a company called pregnancy and parenting. Um, I've also taught at the prenatal yoga center. Um, when uh, Terry <laughs> has a, has a birth. I've stepped in for her. Um, and I also work as a labor support doula, um, here in New York city. So you can find me on my website, which is, um, full birth, one word, F U L L B I R T H fullbirth.com. Um, I also have a, a training coming up for um for doulas, which is one step toward um certification with Dona or Doulas of North America. So that workshop will be on January fourth, fifth, and sixth. Um, if there's anyone interested in becoming a doula. Um and um And I'll make sure all this in our show notes. Great.
2: So thank you for really diving into this. I hope that those that listened understand the whole, I mean, not the whole, but understand the ARRIVE trial a little bit better so that they can have a conversation with their care provider and make decisions of what's best for them. Thank you so much.
1: My pleasure.
2: All right, be well.
1: Bye. Bye.
2: This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope.